Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Top 100 Clubhouse, the ultimate podcast for golf course enthusiasts worldwide. I'm your host, James Henderson, and we're about to embark on a journey through lush fairways and breathtaking landscapes, as well as delving deep into the minds of fascinating individuals from every corner of the golfing universe. Get ready to explore the world's top golf courses through the eyes of those who know them best. The Top 100 Clubhouse podcast is brought to you by Eden Mill, bringing the tradition of distilling back to St Andrews, the home of golf. When you mention Scotland uh, to anyone over the world, uh, one of the main places they'll mention is St Andrews because of that connection, connection to golf. For us to really bring, bring whiskey back and connect in to the local history of the town, but really just adds an extra layer, um, an extra feather in the cap of what St Andrews has to offer. This week we have Bob Ford the legendary head pro of Oakmont and Seminole. He is also the honorary starter for the US Open. Enjoy. Hello, Bob. How are you? I'm good, James. Thanks. Thanks, Javi. Nice to be with you, boys. I've uh, also got Javi here. Javi, how are you? Good morning. Very nice morning watching the 17th, 18th at the old course. You couldn't get a better setting, could you, Bob? It's pretty amazing. No, I mean, this is a fantasy for me. I've never been up in this building, the Old Course Hotel, and to look out onto this golf course is just extraordinary. You've been here a few times before, haven't you, Bob? You've... Not a lot, but I have. I, You know, as we spoke, uh, 2017, I qualified. Probably one of, my, one of my greatest memories is to qualify to play here in the Senior Open. You know, you fly over from the States and you got one round to play and you got to, you know, obviously have a hot day. And I was lucky and uh, got to play only two rounds, sadly, for me. But uh, it was a real religious experience for me. It's a nice time to spend a weekend in the... Yeah, so yeah, the, no, the town is extraordinary. I mean, you just walk around and you just... I mean, the history is just blows your mind. Yeah, it's very cool, isn't it? Um, so, Bob, I'd like to start off by asking you, how did you first get into golf? What was your... Entry point. Yeah, my mom and brother played, uh, and I followed them around as a little kid, a little boy, and I pulled her cart, and finally one day they let me hit a couple balls, and I made contact with them, and uh, it was extraordinary. My mom was a uh, volunteer at tournaments. <clears throat> we had the Philadelphia IBB Classic at White Marsh, and she would go there, and I'd tug, tag along, and there was a guy named Reeves McBee. It was a tour player at the time, and he was hitting balls by a fence that I was sitting there watching. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. The sound of it was, I'd never heard a sound like that. And uh really turned me on. So I played a lot as a kid, uh, caddied a lot uh, at Aronimic in Philadelphia. And uh, I really wasn't an amateur player like most of these guys. I didn't grow up playing amateur golf. and uh, But just casually just kept getting better and better and better. And by senior year of college, I got to be good enough to, uh, go see Lou Warsham, who hosted the 73 Open that Miller won. I worked that month for him because my folks had moved to Pittsburgh and uh, asked him what he thought I should do. And he said, why don't you come work for me this summer? I'll find out where, how good you are. And I said, what would I do? He said, well, be my assistant at Oakmont. I'm like, wow, that, yeah, that'd be cool. So so that started it. And <clears throat> So I was 21 at the time, uh, first year at Oakmont, and uh, it's been a been a great ride ever since that's amazing so you've been at oakmont you've been working with oakmont ever since yeah it's the only job i really 
you know, serious job, full-time job I ever really had. You've, um, so how long did it take you to take on the, how did you climb the ranks at Oakmont? What was the? Well, uh, you know, my days at Oakmont, um, I worked in the summers and then I played in the winter. So I played all over the world. I, you know, was trying to play, you know, to see if I could get my card. I went to four tour schools and luckily for me, I missed them all. <laughs> And uh, then he retired uh, in the fall of 79. We had the 78 PGA that John Mahaffey won. And he retired the next fall. And uh, I was just lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. They gave me a chance. There were like six guys, you know, they whittled it down to six guys. And uh, I was lucky to get the to get the job. I was 25 at the time. So they, they made a big, big bet on me, which was lucky for both of us. Obviously, Oakmont is famed for being this difficult test of golf. How has it changed over the years since you first joined there? How has the golf course changed? Well, it's, it's changed tremendously. You know, the Phones family uh, died off, let's call it 1950. And since 1950, we've had Trent Jones, Robert Trent, the dad. We've had Tom Fazio. We've had Arthur Hills, a guy named Ferdinand Garbin, fussed with it for a little bit. And then Cor Crenshaw did... The sixth green complex for us, uh, like in 2019 or 2020. And then after COVID, they got golf architecture became popular again, building golf course. They got too busy and they, they begged off, you know, continuing with us. We were going to kind of go piecemeal at a time. And we got Gil involved and, uh, and Gil just put a plan together and, uh, we, we bit on it. And his deal was that everything that, those architects that I mentioned did up until, you know, after 1950, he was going to get rid of. And he was going to go, everything that he was going to do was back in the photos from the Phones family, the Phones era. So we've got some really interesting things that he did that we none of us even knew about. I don't know where he got these pictures because we thought we had them all, you know. But he's an amazing guy and uh, we're really excited to open up, you know, next spring and uh, get, a, get a year under our belt and then host the U.S. Open. You must be very excited about yeah, that. It's, yeah, it's exciting to unveil something like that. You know, you asked how the golf course has changed. I mean, when I got there, you know, the greens were circles. Uh, that was in the 70s. Um, you know, the trees were pretty young at the time. They were probably only 10 years old. So, you know, I watched them grow to 40 feet and some 50 feet, and they were all behind all the greens, so there was a nice backboard to hit against. <clears throat> we were playing one day with Jim Simons, who was a Pittsburgh guy, and uh, we were telling him about what we're going to do with the tree program. He said, you can't do that. He said, you know, we that's how we hit our shots off of items like that, trees, and the trees behind it provides a great backboard. As soon as he said that, I'm like, we're on the right track, boys. Let's let's go forward. We've got them. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, so, you know, we really just started pecking away uh, at the trees. Uh, you know, we were you were in a bunker and you were behind a tree. You know, you were in a ditch and there was a tree in front of you. I mean, it was just extraordinarily, you know, everybody in that era was planting trees and, you know, trying to make their golf courses more beautiful. It was a beautification. We had beautification programs and tournaments to raise money for it to plant the trees, and, uh, God, we had to spend $2 million taking them down. I mean, it was extraordinary. But once we started and we cleared them for the play, you know, we, you could be in a fairway and be behind a tree or, you know, have branches hanging over the fairway. So, you know, we cleared all that out. The more we kept pecking away at it, 
It was never anybody's intent to take it all off. But the more we kept pecking away at it, the prettier it got. The ditches became exposed. We grew some fescue, which had no fescue in the 70s and 80s, none. And uh, it just, it kind of, it's like taking an old painting and cleaning it up and seeing things that you never saw before. And and now now what Gil's done, in addition, is just, uh, it's mind-blowing. Why not try Eden Mills' The Guard Bridge blended malt whiskey or golf gin? Visit our sponsor's site, www.edenmill.com, for more information. Eden Mills St. Andrews, bringing the art of distilling back to St. Andrews. Um, Was there a reason you went with Gil over other uh, designers? Was he just the best option for what you were doing, or...? Yeah, I, th- I think so. You know, in the 2016 Open, James, uh, we had uh, Gil and I were on the telecast, the Fox telecast together. We were in there with Holly Saund- Saunders and uh, Sean uh, McDonough, and uh, we were kind of the Fox One show early in the morning and then Big Fox for the afternoon. And we just had a ball together, so we, you know, developed a relationship. And I noticed he was walking around in the mornings and taking notes. So he came came to the set with you know a notepad i said you're going to leave those notes with me when you're done you know and uh, he said no i'm not but I'll, you know, i'll tell you about them we never really did get to visit about it but once core crenshaw who we brought in at Seminole in 2017 i think to do some work uh once they begged off gil was the next obvious guy was his notes just pictures of uh, drawings of chainsaws <laughs> He was a fan of it. I'll tell you, there's only a few guys that, that there's very few members now that will admit to being against it. Obviously, it was very contentious at the time. Uh, no fists were thrown, but some were, you know, talked about. Uh, but so there's no members that feel strongly that we did the wrong thing. Uh, now, you know, Arnold, God bless him, one of my dear pals, you know, he, he said, Bob, look, I played here in the 40s with my dad when it was a lynx-like course, and I've watched the trees. I've grown up with the trees. i got to tell you, I like the trees better. I'm like, okay. You know, I loved them so much, I wasn't going to, you know, we we never talked about it again. And then a couple of years ago, we had a big dinner at the club, the Faraday, uh charity dinner, and Jack Nicholas and Tom Watson came. And they both gave me a little stuff about it, like, I, I don't like it, I hate it, it's no good. I mean, why'd you do that? And they were... You know, they're like older members at a club, you know, that don't like change. And uh, I think that, you know, they had such great success there, both of them. I mean, Tom finished second in two of our championships. And really, in 94, was in the hunt until the final day. And he got really upset that the greens were, like they were probably 12 throughout the, through Saturday. And then Sunday, they were probably 14. And he was really upset with Judy Bell, who was president at the time. That, you know, our superintendent did it, and uh, I think Judy had nothing to do with it. But uh, so he didn't obviously didn't didn't win again. But they've had great success, and uh, they just have the memories they have is with trees. So, yeah, very much so. But there is a trend. I know um, a n- number of golf famous golf courses in America. There's a trend to open up fairways and get rid of trees across the board. Do you think? Um, in terms of architecture, 
these methods that Tom Doe, Core Crenshaw, Gil Hans are putting in, do you think they're a fad? This tree removal, opening the fairways, like uh, like Tom Fazio was in the eighties and nineties. Do you think that's uh, it's going to change, and people are wanting more tight courses further down the line? Or yeah, it's interesting because uh, it does go in waves, doesn't it? Yeah, you know. Um, but I mean, this has withstood this test of time for you know hundreds of years. So I don't, I don't. My guess would be uh, they're not going to plant trees again. I mean, we've had a few people at Oakmont suggest, can't we plant a tree on the tees for shade and things like that in the summer and kind of got laughed out of the room. But, you know, but there's people out there that think that way. Uh, I, I don't think so. I, I think we just went through an era of people thought that Augusta had just an enormous influence on everybody in America and sadly cost, cost everybody fortunes. And... Uh, and, you know, Pine Valley is, is kind of each hole unto itself, which is Pine Valley is one of the greatest architectural golf courses in the world. And, uh, but as, as is this. So, you know, it's chocolate and vanilla. Yeah. I, I don't think we'll go back. Yeah, very much so. There's one thing that a lot of people don't consider with the trees, and it's that the roots go under the surface and they can expand very, very widely. And it's a danger for, for the floor, for the fairways, for the greens. Uh, there's an example at Jockey Club in Argentina. They have four tipa trees over the green. And one of them died and they took it away. And the roots were below the green until the 100 yards on the fairway. Mm. So if you make a, like a radiography of, of the fairway be, below the ground, you will see a lot of roots from trees. And that's dangerous. Um, if there's not correct management, management, you can kill a green. You can really kill a green. And what Bob says about this, the, the members saying the shades and the, um, on the tees, Oakmont in summer, I was there, can be very hot and humid. Yeah. And yes, like all the members like wanting a little bit of shade bef before teeing off, that makes sense. But in places like near greens and near fairways, it's dangerous because you can lose grass. The, in terms of the management of the golf course, when you removed the trees, was it easier to manage the grass because the shade places had a similar sunlight? Absolutely. And you can't have both. You can't have trees and grass. So once, once we got rid of the trees, much, much better, much easier. And particularly in the fall when all those leaves, are, all those trees are falling down and covering the golf course, the, we spent a fortune cleaning them off. You know, now, now we have no trees. And when we have storms, there's there's no tree, you know. No, it's it's been been great. So you also have worked with Seminole. Um, tell us about that. How did you get involved with Seminole? I had a couple of Oakmont members that would take me down in the winter time. I spent the winters in Florida a couple of months in the winter, um, and the last in the late nineties, uh, my invitations got more. Uh, frequent, and I just thought I was a good guy, and my my members liked me. But uh, obviously, they were bringing me over to have the honchos at Seminole check me out. I guess I, I didn't know it at the time. I never I never knew the job was open. I never interviewed. I never applied. Didn't none of that. Got you know one of the guys I played a lot with, one of the members of Seminole, uh, called me in April and said that I, you know Jerry Pittman's going to retire after all these years, twenty eight years, and 
you know, none of them had any experience hiring a golf professional. He said, you know, would you, you think Oakmont would let you come down and come down and spend the winters with us? I said, I don't know, but I'd like to ask. I'll get back to you. Obviously, I asked my wife first, and uh, I was a little surprised. She was all for it. She said, God, that'd be neat. Let's do that. I'm like, okay. Now I got to get it by the big boys. And <laughs> sat down with the people at Oakmont at the time, and uh, they were all for it. And uh, we did it. Worked out incredibly. It's such an amazing thing that to Brits is completely foreign concept. The idea of uh, being able to be a golf prof- at two golf courses because of the seasonality of the golf in America. Um, do you? How did do you have overlapping periods? You know, not really. And and uh, you know, conscientiously, I knew what happened at Oakmont from October fifteenth, April fifteenth. It was. Hardly anything, you know. Um, it's gotten busier now uh, in the winter months because of these, uh, you know, learning centers that we now have and people hit all year long, all, all winter. And simulators, they, they like that. <clears throat> that was a little bit before my time or after my time. And uh, so I knew that I wasn't really jeopardizing my role at Oakmont because, uh, you know, Oakmont to me came first. Uh, if anything if anything went sideways, I would go back. I would just resign from Seminole and go back. But I had some great guys, uh, you know, take over for me in that time period. And uh, they really, they grew faster that way by being on their own. And uh, it just, it just uh, luckily really worked out. Um, what's the differences in terms of golf course between Seminole and Oakmont? What's your take away from being a pro at both the clubs clubs and courses yeah well (laughs) the clubs are like night and day i mean oakmont is world famous it's uh championships um it's open 24 7 you know we have we have accommodations we have breakfast lunch and dinner we have parties we have weddings Uh, it's a busy uh, family place and it's one of the great country clubs in the world and Seminole is a golf club, and it's lunch only. There's no breakfast. There's no dinner. Uh, the swimming pool's gone, although nobody swam in it anyhow. Um, and at 6 o'clock, you must be off the property. And uh, it's pretty extraordinary. It, it, we used to, you were used to not be allowed on the property till 8.30 in the morning. It was kind of a gentleman's club. And I caught in right about the time it was changing. And, uh, you know, it was... It was come up 11.30, have lunch with the boys, a bunch of people in the room. The boss put all the games together and told everybody who they were playing against, what they were playing for, and everybody went out and they came in and they drank in the locker room and went home. They left before 6. So it's an extraordinary culture uh, at Seminole. It's very different. It's very uh, just more, I don't want to say more golf-centric because Oakmont's incredibly golf-centric and and the passion that people have for both those clubs is extraordinary. In terms of a club, the seminal format sounds like you have to play with everyone. You have to be able to get on with everyone within the club. They really do. You know, you know, there's kind of four elite clubs at the top at, at, uh, in the States. You know, it's Pine Valley, Cypress, Augusta, and Seminole. Those four actually have a match between them. And, who's, uh, the, who's the reigning champions? Oh, I don't know. It cha- you know, it's changes and it's handicapped and okay. Yeah, it's not. It's not a not a big deal. But uh, 
the uh, Seminole, of those four clubs, Seminole members pl- play together much more often than any of those other clubs. All the other clubs are all bring three, bring three guests all, all the time, and most of them have accommodations and just, just very different. Oak, or, uh, Seminole is just very golf-centric. Yeah, there's a lot of courses over here like Muirfield or um, St. George's where two or three days a week, it's just, it's called the pool and you just turn up and your match is sorted for you. You just go out and play. And it's a great way for a club to engage its members with meeting new people and because there's nothing better than playing golf with someone to get to know them, right? Exactly. No, absolutely. And and really, they vet new members. And we have, we have a skins game Wednesday, Friday, Saturday at Seminole. And, uh, you know, they vet new guys and it's, uh, it's, you know, mostly members only. There'll be two or three guests each time, but they play, you know, 40 guys and Oakmont has the SWAT. Yeah. Which, which Javi's played in and, uh, the SWAT goes back to the phones there back in the twenties and, uh, it's, it's a scratch game, but there's still 40 guys and you don't have to be a scratch player to play in it, but you don't play with any strokes. And it's a betting game. It's uh, ten bucks a player, so you lose two or three hundred a day, pretty easy. So at Seminole, it's a little, you know, it's a little quieter financial game. But uh, but both, you know, as you say, you know, there's no better way to get to meet people. Just just put me in with a game, and I'll meet some new guys and play and develop friendships and the camaraderie. And I mean, they're really clubs. You know, a lot a lot of places are you know have clicks and guys play together the same guys every time and you know i prefer this yeah i'm exactly there with you um the seminal member guest is quite famous it's, um and it's had quite a few famous winners am i right the pro member yeah the, the pro, pro member pro member got famous you know when i took over i inherited a uh, a pro three member uh event where we sat on the tee and got our members to play I would invite 20 of the local pros to play and we'd put them all together and we'd have a, you know, a day. It wasn't really a big deal. And actually guys would call me and say, geez, Bob, I played in that for the last 10 years. How come I didn't get invited? I'm like, well, I only had 20 invites and I, I don't really look at past lists. These are my pals, you know? So I got a little upset at the format, you know, and I went to Tim Neer was my boss, the guy that hired me and he was the next chairman. I said, Tim, any chance we can change this format? And which nobody likes change, right? And uh, especially at an old club like that. Uh, yeah, I was tipping my tip. I was on my tiptoes, but I said, how about if we get the members to invite their professional from up north, you know, and bring them down and have a day like that? He said, yeah, that's a great idea. And unbeknownst to me, he invited Arnold because he and Arnold and Joe Gibbs all started the Golf Channel together. Tim was in the cable business in Boston. <clears throat> Arnold played for the next 14 straight years. He never missed. It was a big, big, big deal to him. He actually played in in one of the early pro members, you know, back before it, it stopped in 1961. He won the last one. I think he won 20000 which was 10 more than any tour event that year. <laughs> but anyhow, it was a big deal for Arnold, but... So some guy got, you know, the next guy got wind of it. He invited Ernie, Johan Rupert, and then this guy invited Jack, and, you know, pretty much it morphed into a tour event almost, where today you're not, you don't play on the PGA Tour. You're, not, you're on the wait list. So, um, you know, the first couple of years it was probably 50-50 club pros to 
uh, tour players. And it's just, you know, it got to be, a, you know, I, I, I won't say how, say how I wanted to say it, but uh, just got to be a show of strength. Let's put it that way. It must be quite um, invigorating for you, seeing all these people and you overseeing this event and making that change. Yeah, I mean, I you know, part of me wished that it was my buddies from around the country, the Club Pro gang, uh, but obviously the tour players bring a much bigger cachet to it. And it's interesting, you know, a couple guys have some new kids that get on the tour, and I'd call them to say, Jesus, guy, I'd like to invite you. And you say, okay, well, tell me what it's about and how much money and what am I going to get paid and, you know, what's the purse? I'm like, uh, no, no, there's, uh, well, there's no uh, appearance money and uh, actually there's no purse. You just get your name on the wall in the clubhouse and, you know, maybe I'll take a rain check on that. Maybe try me again next year. You know, it's like they just, they don't get it, you know, which is kind of cool. And uh, then they, then the next year they, they call any chance you can get me in that tournament this year. So. It's pretty cute. So, but, um, Martin was saying yesterday that he was, uh, so he's a rules official, rules official at um, the Arnie. So he was do he'd be walking around tournaments, and the only person that's ever asked him um, what he does was Matt Kutcher, and he is the architect for all eight of the ten open courses. Martin, yeah. So that's hilarious that all these guys don't have a clue. You know, in <laughs> golf, they know everything about golf, but they don't know who Martin Ebert is. And they're playing on the golf course. He's just designed the new hole on. <laughs> he's he's spectacular too. The work he's done at some of, some of these great golf courses is extraordinary. So, in terms of we've talked about the differences between Oakmont and Seminole, did you find there was a cultural change when you decided to go down, or just because you'd been there so many times, you understood the ethos of Seminole, so you felt like you could fit in quite easily? No, I was nervous as heck. No, I, no, I really didn't. I, I knew the guys I was playing with and being invited, but it was it's kind of a golf and go. You know, you have one drink in the locker room and you go. So I was very nervous going down because these were the, you know, heads of corporations and just a much different level of, of guy than I was used to and new people. And you never know how people are going to react to you in a situation like that. But, uh, so I stood on the tee for most of that year. I played with 108 different members that year. And after after three or four weeks, it was like, I think I can do this. All these people want to talk about is golf. <laughs> and uh, I was okay with that. And uh, so I got comfortable really, really quickly. You know, like you said, you play golf with somebody and you really get to know them. And How many members would there be at Seminole? 300. 300. So you, in your first year, you played with over a third of them. I did, yeah. Quite impressive. Again, in that game. If it wasn't for that game that I could just throw myself into. I mean, you don't got to call somebody you don't know and ask them. And they'd show up, oh, yeah, nice to meet you, Bob. And, you know, look forward to playing with you. And, you know, you strike up a relationship. So it was it was great. I mean, playing golf, if the golf professional doesn't play golf with his members, he's really missing something. Well, I'm, I'm gutted about playing with uh, Martin Hush at uh, North Berwick the other day. He took my money. Um, but the, he's a beauty. Yeah, he's a good Love guy. Him. Martin's a great guy. Um, the outside of the two golf courses, you've been blessed. Uh, you're the honorary starter for the U.S. Open. That's a very cool claim to be. And um, how did you come to be that? What was your process? What was the process? Maybe my favorite job I ever had. <laughs> <laughs> That's really, I really enjoy it. Uh, Mike Davis came to me. 
after the 16 Open because I retired from Oakmont after the 16 Open. And he said, uh, would you have any interest in being the starter for the Open? I said, tell me a little bit more about it. And I was, I was apprehensive. It was Aaron Hills at the time. 2017 was my first gig. And uh, after that, I was hooked. It was, it was a blast. You know, any, you know, to do anything inside the ropes at a major championship, whether you're caddying or doing, being a standard bearer, you know, I told you my mom was a volunteer at championships and <clears throat> I followed her and I volunteered for the 71 open at Marion when Jack and Trevino played off. And, uh, then in 73 at Oakmont, we moved to Pittsburgh and, and I got involved in that. So, uh, you know, if you can't play between the ropes, just to be inside is pretty fun. Yeah, very much so. In terms of, um, you've, You've got a bit of a you cut of a very legendary figure in terms of the merchandising side of um, the U.S. Open. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, uh, you know, I started in, in '80 at Oakmont, and I qualified to play in the '80 Open at Baldestraw. And Bob Ross was the professional there, and he was a merchandiser extraordinaire, and he took it up a couple notches. And uh, because, and he also qualified to play at his home course that year as well. And uh, <clears throat> so we'd play practice rounds together. And then after we played and after the tournament rounds, we both only got to play two tournament rounds, but we'd go in the tent and work the tent. And so I learned it because I knew I was going to host it in 83. And uh, so that was uh, an incredible learning experience. I went to Augusta every year to also learn. And, you know, I, my salary at Oakmont from day one until I retired was a thousand a month. So all the money that I made was through the merchandising of the golf shop and teaching and playing. And so, I mean, it was important to me. And, uh, so when the open came, I guess Bob had done some advertising in the magazines after the bonus raw open that, you know, he had extra merchandise and did anybody want to buy anything like golf world magazine back then? And uh, I said, well, why wouldn't we do that before the Open? I mean, why would we wait till after? You know, let's see if we can, set, you know, do some more. So I got Bobby Clampett, who was a uh, Arias guy at the time. That was a that was a vendor uh, that's no longer around. And uh, we took out ads in Golf World and sold it. And it was it was pretty controversial to the USGA. They were, they were a little upset with that because uh, it was new to them and and. Uh, they didn't know how they felt about it, but you know my club st- stood up for me, and uh, um, you know it kind of got them started with their program of you know the merchandising part of it. So you know, and I and I guess through '94, '94 I, I ran it for the club. You know, they, they they were the beneficiaries at that time, and Mary Lopenzinski, who runs it now, she she has ever since '95. Uh, she really understudied us that year, and uh, then boom, they took it over and was gone, gone from the clubs and the professionals. And um, well, I think how much money is going through those things now. And I know the merchandising tent at the Open um, does te- when it was here did ten million in uh, turnover, which is quite a lot of money. Yeah, well, dub- double that for the U.S. Open, and then five times that for the Masters. Right? Well. I wanted to ask you the merchandising the masters do is absolutely insane. The quality of the output they produce there was that something you, um, 
do you think that the USGA tried to emulate within the US Open? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, the Masters, you know, they did it every year. So they got good, you know, better at it every year that they went. And uh, so they were the ones for all of us to learn from. And uh, the USGA certainly learned a lot from, from the Masters. One of the great things about the Masters is they don't charge you huge amounts of money for this, the food and drink and the once you're in the space. It's a quite a special interest. It's quite affordable. Yeah. You go to the shop and you can buy a lot of stuff for like the same price you buy it on a, on a major wholesaler, the shops without logos. And like the food is like prices are very low and the variety you have at the, at the masters is like uh, for guys like me, it's a problem because when I arrive home, my wife says, okay, two more shirts, two more hats. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And when I get to a plane for the next trip, I said, please, no more shirts. So, and yeah, the man, the man, I wanted to jump after this, like the golf shops or the pro shops of like the special courses. Like when like, you go, you go as a guest and one of the things that you, you really want to say, I need to get a shirt from Oakmont. I need to get a hat from Seminole. Uh, and they are very, I find it like very um, charming how they are decorated and put together and you can buy anything. It's like the, a case for an iPhone, uh, a, a whiskey, <laughs> a whiskey glass, uh, a teddy bear for your kid with the logo of the masters or, or yeah. Uh, how how would, how did you develop in both Oakmont and Seminole like the variety and the offer uh, of modern stuff when technology came together uh, at the shop? Yeah, well, uh, interesting. You know, I, I was fortunate that I got to travel a lot to different places uh, through my playing, and everywhere that I went, uh, I went to that town to seek out the top guy and go in and just steal all of his ideas. I never had. <laughs> Never had one of my own, but, uh, you know, again, it was my, it was how I made my money and it was important to me and, and I was very passionate about it. I enjoyed it. It was fun. Uh, the kids that all, you know, that we worked together have been amazing how much they've brought everything up, you know, they just give everybody a chance to succeed and they rise to the occasion. So. We just copied everybody and, and saw things as we traveled that, oh, that'd be neat to have the logo on. Let's bring that in. Yeah. Is there anything that you um, you took in that just instantly was a huge success and your top seller? Or has it always been things like shirts and hats that have been the... Shirts and hats are probably 80% of your business. You oh, know? wow. But then, you know, then the, the trinkets and all the little things. and The big coins. Like ball markers, yes, ball oh, markers, yeah. speech markers, all the accessories, yeah, yes. they, they all add up. Um, yeah. What other involvement do you have in golf outside of the um, Oakmont, Seminole, and the starters position? Well, um, I've taken on a few new responsibilities. Uh, Straight down is probably one of my big ones. It's a clothing manufacturer from San Luis Obispo, California, and Mike Rowley owns it for the last forty years, and become a great friend of mine he's a senior amateur competitive player and he actually was here for the senior open he tried to qualify at dinners together and uh you know he's a west coast brand and he's trying to infiltrate the east coast more seriously and it's not like like i carried it at oakmont but uh so he's using me to try to uh, have developed those relationships on the east coast uh, i have a relationship with easy go 
carts, golf cars, extraordinary golf car, which I hate golf cars, which is funny because, uh, yeah, we'll just leave it at that. But they're great, they useful? great people. Yeah. Yeah. Places that, you know, places that that's all you can do is use a cart. I'm also with a GBN, which is a golf business network. It's a, uh, for my end of it, it's a search business for managers, superintendents, and professionals. You know, I, I'm not busy with any of these things, but I do a little dabble a little bit. And uh, All Access Travel, I just signed up with them to uh, do what Javi does and, you know, take people to places. And uh, so, yeah, I stay, I don't want to call it busy. And I used to play four or five times a week until I hurt my elbow, so... Uh, these things are nice to fall back on. It's a shame you come to Scotland with a sore elbow. <laughs> Brutal. No, we planned this trip with my sons for months, and I would just walk around with them. It's you know, it's, but I, I enjoy watching them play. And you know, like being you know, if, if you're inside the ropes, as long as I'm walking and watching people play golf, I'm happy. So you've been involved in a number of one sec. Do you want to go? You go. I want to that wanted to continue his sons' uh, Walker Cup. We are here for the Walker Cup. The next Walker Cup captain is member of Oakmont and a very accomplished amateur. Yeah. And then you have the Walker Cup in in some years to come. Thirty two we signed on for it. Yeah, it's been been a long time because our founder really started the Walker Cup matches and uh Mr. Phones and uh was captain of the first two matches, the international match that wasn't an official deal and then the next actually the next two walker actual walker cups he captained um so it's interesting that we never hosted it and we hosted all the other usj championships but uh, we're going to do it in 32 nathan smith is a pittsburgh kid i've tried to get him to join oakmont and he won't do it um we'd love to have him but uh he can't see through the forest quite yet but but he's a great kid. He's a great player. Won four U.S. Mid-Ams. Played he, in. Four. He can't see through the forest, but it's good that he just took down a load of trees then. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good call, James. But, uh, he's a great friend of mine. Uh, we played a lot of golf together through the years. He's here, obviously, uh, as the understudy for Mike McCoy, who's a seminal member and great friend. And, and a uh, great player as well. Great player. Yeah, Mike's really, really, he got great, like, in his late 40s and through, you know, Still a great player, but uh, Walker Cups is, is just, I've been to every one now since since Marion in uh, 08 or 9 or 10. Nine. What's your favorite tournament golf? Would you say Walker Cups up there? Walker Cup and the Amateur, yeah. I mean, they're really fun. We hosted the Amateur at Oakmont 21, which was a blast. It's interesting as a pro saying amateur events is your favorite. It's well, you know, it's really it's really the game. I mean, the game is an amateur game. I mean, the professional side of it, we all, you know, there are idols and heroes and fun to watch them play. But, I mean, if it wasn't for amateur golf, there would be no golf. There would certainly be no professional golf. What's your big takeaways from your career in golf? What have you learned, the things that you'd like to hand on to your next um, head pro at Oakmont or your next, what's, what would you want them to carry on being? You know, I think the traditions of the game, the etiquette of the game, um, you know, I, I, I can't stand slow play and I can't stand people, uh, you know, not taking care of the golf course, just the etiquette. I mean, that's really, you know, people are like, no, you don't want to play with me. I stink. I said, I don't care how you play. Believe me, there's nothing I haven't seen from a quality of golf standpoint. 
I just care that you play fast and that you abide by the traditions. Um, I, right, I think we're going to finish off one last thing. I like to ask everyone this. I want to hear your top five golf courses. Um, it can be, I've had people say 13. So I want to, and it has to be your favorites, not what you think is the best golf course, the place you'd like to play. In the world? In the world. Wow, that's really hard. It's Just what's your thirty-eight thousand courses in the world, and you have to go only with five. No, you can choose more than five. I've just it's um, just only a few more though. And we're going to include Oakmont Seminole, or do you not include them? You, they, they are obvious calls. Yeah, they're obvious for you. They're home, so we'll we'll take them away. And I would say Pebble Beach. I would say Pine Valley. What do you like about Pebble Beach? What's the uh, the memories that I have there? Um, uh, you know, there's no place in the world that I've been yet uh, that competes with the Monterey Peninsula, just the whole scene out there. It's just very romantic. To me, this is religious. That's romantic. Um, so Pebble Beach, Pine Valley, I think is just an extraordinary work of architecture. Just brilliant. Um I would say National Golf Links. I'd say Marion. And uh, probably Royal Melbourne. Yep. I noticed no British courses there. Well, five's just not enough, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking, you know, I mean, the old course is, it's, it's, it's got to be in your top five. You got to let me have more than five. This is no, you can enough. have more than five. I'll, if, <laughs> just courses. Is there any courses that you think are um, unknown courses that you th- uh, deserve more respect than they get? Well, Port Rush is now a lot more yeah. popular now. Port Rush. I played in the Senior Open there when I turned fifty. It was a real treat because it was in July and I was working at Oakmont for like fifteen more years. So that was a present that I asked for from the club to allow me to take that time off and went over there and played just had an extraordinary actually got to play the weekend obviously there so I got to play a lot uh, so I mean that's an extraordinary golf course and and County Down County Down's extraordinary and and here in Scotland um, Turnbury is just blown blows me away as far as I think it's the cat's meow of, of and sadly out of the open rota now. Yeah. So, um, how about golf holes? Any golf holes that you can include the holes at Seminole and Oakmont? Any golf holes that you would love to just be on the tee and play over and over again? Those ones that just keep coming, like the seventeenth year at St Andrews, is a great example. Well, I think the first one that comes to mind is eighteen at Oakmont because I lived on the eighteenth green at Oakmont for twenty-five years. Uh, and obviously worked there for 40. Um, and I think the next hole that comes to mind quickly is the eighth at uh, Pebble Beach. It's just one of the most incredible meetings of land and sea. And those those two probably. Very good. Um, Javi, would you like to ask any more questions? One last question. Uh, it's about contrasting uh, Seminole at Oakmont. A lot of people were not lucky enough to play them. So I would like you to explain uh, the difference in maybe architecture and playability bet- between uh, Oakmont and Seminole, Seminole, the angles, Oakmont, the 
the uphill holes are the short ones, the downhill holes are the long ones. Sometimes it's, it plays like a links. Uh, in Seminole, it is like if you go over the hole, you will probably go and walk, walk to the green with a wedge because you will put off the green. So tell us about the, the difference between one and, and the other because they are your contrast and your work for the last 40 years. Well, Javi, they are, they, they are extremely different, I think. Um, you know, we have about eight or nine Oakmont members that are also members at Seminole, and a lot of Oakmont guys get to come down because of that as, as, uh, as guests. <clears throat> the Oakmont members that play competition at Seminole feel like Seminole's harder than Oakmont, which is pretty extraordinary. Uh, but they're not used to the wind and the sea and... and and the greens at Seminole are, you can you can actually put off the greens into bunkers at Seminole. I mean, if you did it twice around, that like wouldn't be unusual. Uh, and you know, you would as fast as the greens are at Oakmont, you really don't de-green putts at Oakmont because there's fringe around them. And you know, at Seminole, it just runs off, runs down fifty yards down the fairway. I mean, it's so it's penal in a very different way. The driving zones at Oakmont are unbelievably penal, more like Carnoustie. Uh, with bunkers both sides, deep, very penal, and you're petrified on every tee uh, to drive it. At Seminole, the, the driving zones are incredibly wide. You can basically drive it anywhere at Seminole. But then the second shot's at Seminole, and to hit it in the right spots on the greens to make the ball stop on the green is very, very severe. So they're very hard in different ways, but uh, they're hard golf courses. And um, One last thing was the... I just wanted to add, you said something about Carnoustie and Oakmont. What's the, the, the link or the history behind that? You know, I, I, I don't know that I can answer that properly. Um, but, uh, you know, Hogan won his Open at Oakmont, the U.S. Open in 53. Won the Masters in 53, then the Open, then, then the U.S. Open, then the Open uh, at Carnoustie. So we kind of have that Oakmont-Carnoustie thing with Mr. Hogan. Uh, beyond that, I think everybody compares it because they're probably the two hardest open courses in the both rotas. Uh, other than that, I don't find many similarities. Well, thank you very much, Bob. That was absolutely fascinating. I really enjoyed that. Um, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your Walker Cup. Oh, I can't wait. Can't wait to get on the golf course. Sunny and like 65 out there. No wind. What, what's going on here? It's it's always like this. Yeah. I, I, hope, yeah. I, I brought the sun from Marbella. <laughs> right, thank you. Thank, thank you, guys. Much. My pleasure. Thank you. Sir. Special thank you to Bob Ford. Bob Ford, the legend that is. He was so gracious and wonderful to sit down and do a podcast with us and also do a Q&A at the Walker Cup at a special event we hosted with Eden Milne. There should be a few more of those special events coming along, so keep your eyes peeled. Please remember to play fast, lunch slow.